This is EM Cases EM Quick Hits Podcast. Quick, let's get on with it. EM Cases is part of SHREMI, the Schwartz Reisman Emergency Medicine Institute. That's the nonprofit organization dedicated to improving EM care through high quality research and education. The opinions expressed on this podcast are intended for general information and educational purposes only and should not be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any medical condition, nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice from a qualified practicing physician. Unless stated otherwise, the opinions expressed by the hosts or guests are made in their individual capacity, not on behalf of the Institute nor Medicine Cases. Starting off this month's EM Quick Hits, we've got Ken Milne. Now, Ken was kind enough to talk at the last EM Cases Summit, which was in November. I learned so much there, my brain almost exploded. So Ken, who is, of course, the brains behind the SGEM, I gave him a little challenge, and that was to review the 10 most important papers from 2021 in 10 minutes. Perfect for a quick hit, right? So here's Ken Milne from the EM Cases Summit 2021. Hello, I'm Ken Milne, and this is 10 important recent publications in 10 minutes. Let's go. First paper. There's been a couple of small studies 20 years ago claiming the efficacy of therapeutic hypothermia and out-of-hospital cardiac arrests. The original Targeted Temperature Management, or TTM, trial compared 33 degrees Celsius to 36 degrees Celsius and found no statistical difference. This new TTM-2 trial was a multi-center randomized, unblinded trial of 1900 adult out-of-hospital cardiac arrest patients who were comatose and they compared 33 degrees Celsius to keeping the patients normothermic. Key result? No statistical difference in death from any cause at six months. It was about 50% in both groups. Bottom line? We don't need to cool these patients. And I hear there's a TTM3 trial in the works, which will be normothermia versus <gasps> no temperature control. Paper number two, hyponatremia is the most common electrolyte abnormality in clinical practice. And we've been warned to correct this slowly to avoid the horrible condition of osmotic demyelination syndrome or locked in. The SALSA trial looked at adult patients with moderate to severe symptoms and a sodium of less than 126. They compared a rapid intermittent bolus strategy to a slow, continuous infusion strategy. Key result? No statistical difference in the incidence of overcorrection of serum sodium at any given period up to 48 hours. So the bottom line? Go rapid. Go slow. Speed of correction does not matter. Just be careful not to overcorrect these patients. Paper number three. Now, many of you may know my position on lytics for acute ischemic stroke. I'm not convinced by the available evidence to reject the null hypothesis. But TPA is also currently being used as a bridge therapy for EVT, much like there used to be facilitated STEMI care, the drip and ship to the cath lab model. So this was a systematic review and meta-analysis of three recent randomized control trials looking at EVT plus or minus TPA in over a thousand patients. The key result, no statistical difference in their primary outcome or in all-cause mortality, but there was more bleeding in the combination group. Bottom line, 
there appears to be no high-quality evidence to support TPA prior to EVT if EVT is readily available. Paper number four. Many of us were really excited about the study showing the efficacy of TXA for epistaxis. This excitement has been tempered recently by the publication of the NOPAC trial. This was a randomized, placebo-controlled, blinded trial. Now, patients were included in this trial if they still had epistaxis after 10 minutes of direct pressure and 10 minutes of packing with a vasoconstrictor. The intervention was a cotton wool dental roll with 200 milligrams of TXA, which could be repeated once. The control group was a cotton wool dental roll soaked in sterile water. The key result? No statistical difference for patients getting anterior packing. Bottom line? This raises my skepticism about the efficacy of TXA for epistaxis. Paper number five, antibiotics are recommended for school-aged children diagnosed with community-acquired pneumonia. However, how long should they be treated is an open question. This randomized, blinded, placebo-controlled, non-inferiority trial looked at five days of amoxicillin with five days of placebo and compared it to 10 days of amoxicillin in children diagnosed with community-acquired pneumonia who were well enough for outpatient management. The key result? No statistical difference in the clinical cure rate at two to three weeks. It was about 90% in both groups. However, the lower end of the confidence interval was greater than their pre-specified boundary of 7.5%, so they couldn't formally claim that they demonstrated non-inferiority. Bottom line is, though, I'm going to do some shared decision-making and offer 5 to 10 days of antibiotics depending on the parents' values and preferences. And the rumor is they're now working on a trial looking at zero days of antibiotics for these patients. Paper number six. Patients presenting to the ED with epigastric pain often get treated with a pink lady or a GI cocktail. Well, there was a randomized control blinded trial of 94 adult patients with epigastric pain or dyspepsia this year. They were randomized into three groups. It was the viscous lidocaine plus antacid, the solution lidocaine plus antacid, or antacid alone. Key result? No statistical difference in pain scores at 30 minutes on a 100 millimeter visual analog scale. Bottom line? I've switched my practice. No more pink ladies, just antacid monotherapy now for these patients. Paper number seven. We know that bias exists in the house of medicine. But one type of bias that somewhat goes unrecognized is weight bias, specifically between doctors. And this was a survey of 620 emergency medicine attendings and residents. The key result? A high percentage of participants indicated implicit weight bias against other physicians, while other results suggested some explicit weight bias and professional weight bias. Bottom line, it's important to recognize weight bias does exist in the house of medicine, to understand how to overcome them and to mitigate any negative impacts it could have on patient care and physician-to-physician relationships. Paper number eight. The American Heart Association guidelines 
recommends performing immediate coronary angiography for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest patients with suspected cardiac etiology of arrest and who have ST elevation on ECG. That's important because this study was an unblinded randomized control trial of 554 adult patients with the OCA, the out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, who got ROSC, return of spontaneous circulation, but they had no ST elevations on ECG. And they compared an immediate strategy going directly to the cath lab versus a delayed strategy where patients were admitted to the ICU and then they had delayed and selective angiography. Key result, no statistical difference in all-cause mortality at 30 days. Bottom line, there appears to be no clinical benefit taking these patients immediately to the cath lab. Paper number nine. The American Academy of Pediatrics has new guidelines for the management of the well-appearing term infant between 8 and 60 days with a fever. All age groups still get urine cultures and blood cultures. Inflammatory markers are optional in the 8 to 21 day age group because they're all getting antibiotics and they're all getting admitted to hospital. So this doesn't change management. However, when you look at LPs and antibiotics, they're a maybe now in the 22-day and older group. The youngest group, like I said, is getting admitted, but the 22 to 60-day group can either be admitted or they can be discharged home with close follow-up. The bottom line from this new AAP guideline is that it could decrease lumbar punctures, antibiotics, and hospitalizations in some well-appearing infants, but you still need to use your good clinical judgment and then engage with the parents on risk tolerance. Paper number 10. Now we discussed if TXA works for epistaxis. The HALTIT trial was a multi-center blinded randomized control trial of over 12,000 adult patients with significant upper or lower GI bleed. They either got one gram of TXA IV over 10 minutes followed by 3 grams maintenance infusion of TXA over 24 hours, or it was placebo. The key result? No statistical difference in death due to GI bleeding within 5 days. It was about 4% in both groups, and no statistical difference in all-cause mortality. However, there was a statistically significant increase in VTE. It was double, 0.8 versus 0.4%. Bottom line? The evidence does not support the routine use of TXA in GI bleeds. So in conclusion, be skeptical of anything you hear, even if you heard it from me. We'll have links to the deep dives into each of those papers in the show notes. Thank you so much, Dr. Milne. Now, if you want more great EM Cases Summit stuff, like access to the entire conference of streamed videos, please go to emcasesummit.com. That's E-M-C-A-S-E-S-S-U-M-M-I-T dot com to get your streaming package. Buying your streaming package will help ensure that we continue to deliver free open access EM cases, podcasts, summaries, quizzes, email blasts, videos, the whole shebang for years to come. So please help support EM cases so that we can continue to be foam ed. All right, next we have the best of CGEM with Hans Rosenberg and Britt Long, and they're going to talk about febrile neutropenia. Welcome to another CGEM and EM Cases collaboration. 
Today, I'm joined by Dr. Britt Long, and we're going to talk about his latest CGEM, Just the Facts article, Febrile Neutropenia in the Emergency Department Setting. Welcome once again, Britt. Hans, thanks so much for having me. So, Britt, febrile neutropenia we know is an oncological emergency. Can you tell me, how do we diagnose febrile neutropenia in the emergency department? This is most definitely an oncologic emergency. Mortality was close to 70% before current therapies. But if we have an appropriate diagnosis and management, mortality is actually less than 5%. Now, when it comes to those official criteria, the definition for febrile neutropenia includes a single oral temperature of 38.3 degrees Celsius or greater, or a temperature of 38.0 degrees for one hour with neutropenia. When it comes to taking that temperature, this is usually an oral temperature unless a patient has mucositis where you should obtain an axillary temperature. For neutropenia, this is defined by an absolute neutrophil count of less than 500 or less than 1000 with an expected decrease to less than 500 when we're most commonly going to see neutropenia around five to 14 days after a patient receives chemotherapy. One situation that can be a bit challenging is that patient who presents with a borderline temperature or if they present with neutropenia that doesn't officially meet criteria. For these patients, you should discuss these patients with the oncologist. While they may not meet full diagnostic criteria for febrile neutropenia, they need to be managed on a case-by-case basis because they're still at risk for poor outcomes. Now, given that most of the sites for infection include the classic sort of GI tract, bloodstream, skin, lung, and urinary tract, how do we actually even examine these patients in the emergency department? That's a great question. The key to evaluation is a thorough history and exam because we need to find that source of infection. Like you mentioned, the lungs and the urinary tract are the most common, followed by the GI tracts, the bloodstream, and the skin, but it isn't always straightforward. Because of the reduced inflammatory response, patients often won't have those classic findings of infection that we rely on. A patient with cellulitis may just have some subtle erythema, and a patient with pneumonia may have mild respiratory symptoms and a negative chest x-ray. Fever might be the only sign of infection, so on your exam, you need to evaluate the patient from head to toe and consider atypical infections. On your ENT exam, look for mucositis, mucormycosis, and malignant otitis externa. All of these are much more common in these patients because of their immunocompromised state. Listen closely for a new murmur, which suggests endocarditis, as well as the lungs. When it comes to the abdominal exam, think about necrotizing enterocolitis or tiflitis, which is due to a bacterial or fungal invasion of the bowel wall. This has a very high mortality rate, and patients usually present with this abdominal pain, vomiting and diarrhea, followed by peritonitis and sepsis because of bowel wall necrosis. Another couple areas include infected vascular devices. These provide a portal for bacteremia, so you need to evaluate any lines or ports that the patient can have. Finally, visually inspect the perirectal area. Now, that's a lot to consider, so I use a mnemonic to help me remember a potential source, the Lucas mnemonic. This stands for lung, urine, cardiac, CNS, abdomen, arthritis, skin, and finally spine. That's an excellent tip. I hadn't heard of that uh, mnemonic. Now, we know which areas we are going to be looking for infection, but then the tricky part can be there are common pathogens that we're used to seeing for, again, these types of infections. But are there less common pathogens that we should consider empiric coverage for? When it comes to your microbial coverage, follow your local antibiograms and your institutional protocols based on local sensitivities. 
you do need to provide an anti-pseudomonal agent, but monotherapy coverage of pseudomonas is just as effective as dual therapy. So if you use an agent like cefepime or pepacillin, tazobactam, both of those are good go-to antibiotics. If you think that there could be a viral or a fungal source based on your evaluation, you need to expand your coverage. This is really important in tiflitis. These patients need antifungal therapy because of the risk of invasive fungal disease. You also should provide antifungal therapy in patients who have been on antibiotics for four days and there's still a fever. When it comes to MRSA, not all patients need coverage with a medication like vancomycin. You should think about covering for MRSA in patients with a known history of MRSA. If they're on fluoroquinolone prophylaxis, they have a soft tissue infection, severe pneumonia, a bloodstream infection, mucositis, a line infection, or finally, if they're critically ill and hemodynamically unstable. All right, so I've assessed my patients. I've started their treatment. My last question for you is, do all these patients nowadays require admission? And if not, how do I make this decision? Most patients are probably going to be admitted. If they're septic, they're on fluoroquinolone prophylaxis, or there's a suspected antibiotic-resistant organism, they'll need to be admitted. Now, there are some patients who might be appropriate for discharge after you've discussed the patient with the oncologist and the infectious disease specialist and if they've received antibiotics, and if they've been observed for at least four hours after the antibiotics. There are several risk scores that can help you, including the MASK risk index, which is used for solid and hematologic malignancies, and also the clinical index of stable febrile neutropenia score, or the CISNI score. This is used for solid malignancies. The big take-home point for your listeners is that when it comes to disposition in these scores, they can't replace clinical judgment. The patient has to be well-appearing, they have to be reliable, be able to return to the hospital, not live alone, and finally, the oncologist needs to be on board with this plan. Thank you very much for all that great info, Britt. Thanks for having me, Hans. Love that Lucas mnemonic for where to look for occult sources of infection in the febrile neutropenia patient. Again, that's L for lung, U for urine, C for cardiac, A for abdomen, and S for skin and spine. And just a couple of extra key points when it comes to febrile neutropenia. The majority of cancer patients with febrile neutropenia will have a bacterial infection. So while the priority is, of course, to identify and treat these infections, other complications from cancer like tumor burden and necrosis, drug and transfusion reactions, and PE should be considered in the differential diagnosis. I've been burned before with premature closure of a febrile chemo patient by only thinking about infection and then missing other potentially life-threatening causes of fever in the cancer patient. Another sometimes overlooked thing is that many of these cancer patients will be on steroids, so don't forget to give that stress dose of steroids. I just want to take a moment here as we celebrate the new year to thank all the dedicated, intelligent, hardworking people who make EM Cases what it is. A huge thanks to my content and production team, Eugenia Jung, Fahad Qureshi, Jonathan Whittall, Chen Yuan, Sheza Kayam, Danielle Lewis, Raymond Cho, Hamna Amjad, Winnie Lee, Kate Dillon, Seswata Deb, Priyank Badanagar, Hubert Yu, Chang Liu, Parth Sharma, Alicia Targonsky, Sarah Wynott, Ali Tabatabai, Eric Janot, Puria Rezapur, Anuja Balaral, Nick Claridge, 
Patrick Gilbride, Rob Samard, Justin Morgenstern, Andrew Cameron. I really hope I haven't missed anyone on the team. A big thanks, of course, to Sremi for their incredible support. To the EM Quick Hits content regulars, Emily Austin, Michelle Clayman, Arun Ciel, Sarah Reed, Andrew Petrosoniak, Anonswami Nathan, Hans Rosenberg, Britt Long, and Justin Morgenstern. To my wife and kids for their constant support. And of course, to you, the 50,000 or so EM Casers, for your honest and helpful feedback that really does inspire me to keep on doing what I'm doing. Okay, so shifting gears back to the quick hits. Next up, we have the Deputy Director of the Schwartz-Reisman Emergency Medicine Institute, EM doc and world-class EM researcher at Sinai Health Sciences in Toronto, Dr. Catherine Varner. So way back early in my career, I had one of the most difficult cases ever of a young postpartum woman with flash pulmonary edema, worse than I'd ever seen before. And while I was preparing for our upcoming pair of main episodes on acute heart failure, I thought I'd ask Dr. Varner, who has a special interest in peripartum emergencies, to give us a quick hit on postpartum cardiomyopathy, which we miss all too often in the ED, unfortunately. Listen up. Hi, Anton. That's Catherine Varner here. Thank you so much for inviting me to EM Cases. And today, my EM Cases quick hit is on peripartum cardiomyopathy. This is not a condition we often see in the emergency department, but it's one that I want you to consider when you're seeing a patient in the third trimester or the postpartum period who's coming in with shortness of breath or worsening lower extremity swelling. The case I'm going to tell you about describes some of the diagnostic considerations as well as the management of patients with peripartum cardiomyopathy. So let's get into the case. This is a 35-year-old female who's six days following a normal spontaneous vaginal delivery and she's coming in to your department with shortness of breath and lower extremity swelling. She had a relatively normal pregnancy and delivery, and since then, she's had increasing swelling in her lower extremities and shortness of breath in the last 48 hours. And what brought her into the emergency department now is that she can't even walk without feeling short of breath. Her vitals show that she is slightly tachycardic with a heart rate of 102, blood pressure 98 on 55, a respirator of 24, and an O2 sat of 94%, and she looks exhausted. Her cardiovascular exam is otherwise normal. Her chest is clear, except for she has decreased air entry to the bases, and she has bilateral 3-plus lower extremity edema. This is the type of patient who might want in a monitored setting with oxygen early on in the course. This is not somebody I'd want hanging out in the waiting room waiting for a bed. With two liters of oxygen, her heart, her O2 sat comes up to 96% and her vitals otherwise remain the same. So some of the diagnostic considerations, as most of us, I think, would be thinking this patient likely has a PE, includes what type of blood work should we do? In addition to a D-dimer, in this patient, I would also do a BNP and a troponin. Patients who have normal pregnancies should not have elevations in their BNP. BNP is both sensitive and specific for peripartum cardiomyopathy in the peripartum or postpartum patient. So it can be helpful in making a diagnosis for this patient. Patients with peripartum cardiomyopathy can also have mild elevations in their troponin as well as D-dimer. But making the diagnosis of peripartum cardiomyopathy does not exclude the diagnosis of PE. 
And in fact, these patients are at higher risk of venous thromboembolism than your typical patient in the postpartum period. So even though you've made the diagnosis of peripartum cardiomyopathy based on the BNP, you still need to go forward and do a CT to exclude PE to make sure that they don't have both diagnoses. The next test we should discuss is whether or not to do a chest x-ray first or just do the CT. I would advocate doing a chest x-ray first in patients who are short of breath in the postpartum period may save a patient the radiation of a CTPE. There have been several times in my career where I've made the diagnosis based on a chest x-ray of either peripartum cardiomyopathy or a pneumothorax in the postpartum period in a patient who came in dyspneic. The management of patients with peripartum cardiomyopathy, according to the Canadian Cardiovascular Society, is the same as for any patient with acute heart failure. Your target oxygen saturation is 92%. And if you can't achieve that with oxygen or diuresis, then you're going to start looking at other options like CPAP or BiPAP. And if all else fails, you need to mechanically ventilate them early. If they're volume overloaded, your diuretic of choice is furosemide using 20 to 80 milligram boluses. In this patient, we chose 40 milligrams IV which helped with the diuresis and improved her oxygen saturation. Your next steps are going to be based on what her systolic blood pressure is. So you can consider a vasopressor if she's hypotensive, but if her mean arterial pressure is 65 or more, you can consider nitroglycerin IV. From there, we need to involve our cardiologists. These patients need to be at a tertiary care center because their risk of decompensation is very high. In North America, the mortality rate of peripartum cardiomyopathy is 2%, and worldwide it can be as high as 13%. So having a patient with peripartum cardiomyopathy in a place that can manage a decompensation quickly is really important. To summarize, this patient had peripartum cardiomyopathy It was diagnosed on a chest x-ray and a BNP. She did go on to have a CT to exclude a PE because her D-dimer was elevated. And we know that patients with peripartum cardiomyopathy are still at high risk of venous thromboembolism. These patients would be advised to not conceive again in the future because their risk of recurrence is extremely high. So thanks so much for having me on EM Cases and good luck on your next shift. So interesting about BNP, which I had all but abandoned in the ED after doing a Journal Jam podcast on it and concluding that it was pretty much useless for acute heart failure. But the literature we looked at for the Journal Jam did not include pregnant and postpartum patients. So That's very valuable information for me. I suppose BNP does have a role in the ED for peripartum patients with shortness of breath. So thank you so much, Dr. Varner. Next up, we've got Dr. Joe Nemeth, emergency physician and trauma team leader at Montreal General. He's an associate professor in EM and pediatrics at McGill University Health Center. He's going to update us on anaphylaxis. There's been some new guidelines and a major shift when it comes to using steroids. But before we get into that, a message from our sponsor. Metricate would like to let you know that they are helping EDs during the COVID-19 pandemic to set up additional call schedules and screening clinics. 
Metricade is giving EDs access to their web-based tool, but more importantly, they're doing all the work of building and managing the schedules, helping to build capacity and resilience in our system, doing what they do best. If you're struggling with your logistics of adding coverage to your existing schedule, or you're setting up completely new schedules for screening or treatment, let them help you out. They can get a new schedule up and running in a matter of days, leaving you to take care of other matters. Metricade really wants to help you during this crisis. Let them give you a hand. Check out metricade.com emcases and get in touch with them today. Hello, anaphylaxis. The last time EM cases reviewed this bad boy was 2016, episode 78, with my friend, former colleague, and partner in crime, Dr. David Carr. There have been numerous updates on the show notes. Nevertheless, it is worth the five minutes of your time to review the essentials. The majority of my recommendations, except for dosing, of course, are applicable to both adult and pediatric populations. First, the obligatory definition. Anaphylaxis is an acute, potentially life-threatening hypersensitivity reaction involving the release of mediators from mast cells, basophils, and recruited inflammatory cells and occurs within minutes or up to a few hours after exposure to a provoking agent. My short spiel on this topic is mainly based on two position papers, as well as current international society guidelines, all of which, by the way, I will place in the show notes. Spoiler alert! The quality of evidence for most of these recommendations is low. Only thing differing is the strength of recommendations. Let's talk about the triggers of this lethal anaphylactic cascade. Many are well known to us. In North America, medications are the number one cause. Antibiotics and NSAIDs leading the way. Of note, novel immunomodulators for cancer care as well as biologics are making their way close to the top. Beware and pay close attention to these in your practice. Keep in mind other infrequent and unexpected causes of anaphylaxis, such as exercise, luteal phase of the menstrual cycle, and yes, even intimate sexual contact due to seminal plasma protein allergy. That's another talk for another day. Perhaps Dr. Carr can do this one. Diagnosis is simple. It is all clinical. There are three criteria. Number one, any acute onset of skin or mucosal tissue involvement plus an airway or a breathing symptom. Or number two, two systems involvement following exposure, including the often forgotten GI system. Or number three, Shock post-exposure. Notez bien, that's French for pay attention. 30% of reactions are isolated B, that is breathing, and C, that is circulation symptoms. Yet by the current North American criteria, reactions with only respiratory symptoms do not meet the criteria for diagnosis anaphylaxis. Having said this, the World Allergy Organization wrote a position paper recently challenging these definitions and amended these criteria with the important caveat that anaphylaxis should be diagnosed even in the absence of skin or mucosal involvement if 
following exposure to a known or potential allergen, the patient exhibits any of the isolated signs of hypotension, strider, or bronchospasm without the need for skin involvement. Before we look at treatment, let's look at how this beast kills. A, B, C. Upper airway and or lower airway obstruction and or shock. Not only distributive shock, but this baby is a triple threat. Along with causing distributive shock, it also causes hypovolemic shock by massive third spacing and can cause cardiogenic shock as well from A, vasospasm, and from B, myocardial dysfunction from direct effect of the huge pro-inflammatory cascade. By the way, anaphylaxis with cardiogenic component is called the Kunis syndrome. Look it up. There are no contraindications to epinephrine if done and dose right. 0.01 milligram per kilogram, 1,000 epi, IM in the thigh. Don't underdose epinephrine. A 200-pound patient should not be getting 0.3 milligrams of epinephrine IM. One word on IV administration. Think about it from the get-go. Why? With IV administration, therapeutic epinephrine levels will be achieved within seconds, not minutes. Furthermore, IV administration also provides smoother pharmacokinetics in titration for repeat dosing and for tapering. So what happens if you run into epinephrine-resistant anaphylaxis? which happens 0.3% of the time. Very rare, but it can happen. So let's look at other treatment options. Let's start with the airway and the breathing issue. Get help early. Any strider or wheezing refractory to first dose epinephrine should make one think of nebulization. Nebulization of epinephrine for strider and salbutamol for bronchospasm. Regarding C, circulation issues. This should, of course, be guided by POCUS. The kitchen sink meds include alpha agonists, vasopressin, methylene blue, glucagon, isoproterenol. For most patients, epinephrine will do the job, even those that are beta blocked. So don't get fancy, stick to the basics. One word regarding steroids and histamine 1 and histamine 2 blockers. They have a very low evidence for meaningful improvement on important outcome, and that includes decreasing rate of biphasic reactions. Regarding biphasic reactions, it occurs approximately 5% of the time. It can occur from a few hours up to, yes, even seven days later. The risk factors for this baby are if you have to give more than one dose of epinephrine to a patient, early symptom onset, from exposure, late treatment initiation, patients who have underlying severe asthma, and past history of severe reactions. So how long do we observe? One to two hours of post-resolution of symptoms observation is, is enough, especially in the right low-risk reliable patient group. Much more important than exact time of discharge is patient education at the time of discharge. What I mean is what to give, meaning epinephrine, how to give it, meaning intramuscular thigh, and when to give it, 
at the earliest sign of anaphylaxis. I would be remiss if I didn't rant about one of my pet peeves, a huge pet peeve propagated by nurses, trainees, and yes, even you, fellow faculty, namely one of iodine allergy and association with radio contrast and the need for so-called prepping of these patients. Stop. Really, stop. A person cannot survive without iodine in the body. The cause of anaphylactic reactions from radio contrast is not due to the iodine, but thought to be more from the hyperosmolarity of the contrast agent compared to blood. Lower osmolarity contrast media is associated with a four to five-fold reduction in these type of reactions. Evidence is severely lacking to support the routine use of antihistamines or glucocorticoids pre-medication in patients receiving low osmolar contrast material to prevent radiocontrast-mediated anaphylaxis. Stop it. So let's bring it home. Recognize the disease. Epinephrine early. Consider IV for smoother pharmacokinetics. Limitation of steroids. Early discharge for the appropriately risk-stratified patient. And forget iodine allergy. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Nemeth. My big question when it comes to treatment of anaphylaxis is considering that steroids have been generally thrown out of the mix, when, if ever, are steroids indicated? Well, multiple guidelines agree that steroids should not be routinely given in anaphylaxis, And they also agree that steroids should be considered in the patient with uncontrolled asthma and anaphylaxis where the patient is refractory to epinephrine, meaning anaphylaxis requiring ongoing treatment despite two appropriate doses of IM epinephrine, or in patients who are in shock with anaphylaxis. Now, you might be thinking, well, what's the downside of giving steroids? There is some evidence from the Canadian C-Care Registry that suggests hospitalization and admission to ICU was associated with pre-hospital treatment of steroids even after adjusting for reaction severity and other treatments given. Now, this isn't RCT-level evidence, but definitely something to think about nonetheless. So, really, there are only three indications for steroids in anaphylaxis. Number one, uncontrolled asthma. Number two, they're in shock. And number three, They require ongoing treatment after two adequate doses of epinephrine. And remember, steroids should never replace epinephrine for the treatment of anaphylaxis. All right, next up, we have Anand Swami Nathan, who's going to give us a few tips on the crashing asthmatic. We see a lot of patients with asthma in the emergency department. It is truly bread and butter what we take care of. We're very comfortable with it. What we don't see nearly as much is the crashing asthmatic, and that is the severe end of the spectrum. In fact, severe isn't even the right word because we see severe asthmatics that are short of breath, maybe even have a bit of that quiet chest, and we turn them around pretty quickly. The crashing asthmatic is the one when they hit the door. All you can think about is, man, I want to intubate this patient. And we know that intubation in asthmatic patients is not something we want to do. We know that patients can get worse on the vent. It's very hard to manage their ventilation. And so we want to avoid that intubation as much as possible. So I want to talk a little bit about some things that we can do to really turn around that crashing asthmatic with the goal of avoiding intubation, but at the same time, maximizing our pre-intubation parameters so that if we need to intubate the patient, we are in the best scenario to do so. 
For this conversation, we're presuming we've done the basic asthma management or our EMS folks have done the basic asthma management and it hasn't turned the patient around. As soon as that patient hits the door, there are three things I want to immediately start. One is to get non-invasive to the bedside. The reason we're doing non-invasive here is to support the work of the respiratory muscles. With those high respiratory rates, the increased work of breathing, the respiratory muscles will start to tire. As they tire, their ventilation worsens, they become hypercapnic, they become acidemic, and eventually they will become hypoxemic. And all of that can lead to an encephalopathy that makes it more difficult to take care of the patients. We want to get bi-level on immediately. They don't really need much in terms of the expiratory pressure. They don't need much PEEP, but we want to make sure we're giving them enough inspiratory pressure to relax those muscles, to give them a little bit of time to recover. That is going to improve their oxygenation, improve their hypercarbia, and ultimately it's going to also improve their mental status. To facilitate that non-invasive, if the patient's already encephalopathic, if they're having trouble with that, you can give a small dose of ketamine to facilitate the non-invasive, making sure, of course, that you're not leaving the room. You're going to be watching that patient like a hawk. While I'm getting the non-invasive setup, I'm also going to be giving these patients an aggressive fluid bolus, something in the 20 to 30 cc's per kilo range. They have huge insensible losses. They are going to be volume down. And if I need to convert them to positive pressure ventilation and intubate them, this can actually drop their pulmonary venous return to zero. And so we want to make sure that we have given them adequate preload. And then the third thing I'm doing right off the bat is starting epinephrine. The reason we're starting epinephrine here is because many of these patients aren't taking good tidal volumes, they are bronchoconstricted, and those inhaled beta agonists simply aren't getting down into the lung where they need to go. We can start with IM epinephrine in your typical anaphylaxis dose, so 0.5 milligrams IM. But if you have an IV, you can give this IV. I typically would be starting in the 5 to 10 micrograms per minute range, and then I'm going to titrate that to effect. What we see here is that that is going to reach the lungs. It's going to circulate there. It's going to help to get some bronchodilation. Oftentimes, the non-invasive and the epinephrine is going to be enough to turn these patients around, to break that cycle of asthma. One of the other things, though, that I will include in my package here is magnesium. We know that we have been giving magnesium to asthmatics for a long time, despite the fact that the evidence isn't very good supporting the use of magnesium. We have uh, some trials showing a reduction in hospitalization for the moderate to severe asthmatics. The patient with crashing asthma is going to be admitted. That's not going to change because of some magnesium, but I do find that magnesium can help here. The problem is we're probably not giving enough magnesium. We often will give two grams and then we'll stop at that point. Problem with magnesium is that it does move intracellularly and extracellularly pretty rapidly. It gets eliminated in the urine pretty rapidly. And so what I typically will do is actually give larger doses and give infusions in order to keep the serum level of magnesium high enough. I will give four grams of magnesium followed by an infusion of four grams per hour while I'm resuscitating that patient acutely. It might only be for an hour or two, but I find that it can have a little bit of effect here. Now, one of the hard parts, of course, is knowing which drug is having an effect. Hard to know if the magnesium is the one that really brought the patient back or if it's the epinephrine and the non-invasive, which is more likely. The other thing I like the magnesium for is that the epi at the doses that we're giving can produce some tachydysrhythmias. The magnesium can actually combat that. So that's a nice little added bonus from that magnesium. Let's recap really quickly what we went through in the crashing asthmatic, the one who comes in looking for a tube that you think is going to die unless you intervene immediately. There's a couple of things that we want to do right away. One is starting non-invasive ventilation because those patients are fatigued, they're hypercapnic, they're acidemic, and the non-invasive can help to fight all of those things, including reversing any hypoxemia that's present as well. 
If the patient's encephalopathic, if they're not tolerating non-invasive, consider giving ketamine to facilitate that procedure. To that, we're going to add epinephrine, understanding that the patients aren't getting those inhaled beta agonists down into the lungs. So we can give IM or we can give IV at the 5 to 10 micrograms per minute dose to help to reverse that bronchoconstriction that's going on. Make sure to fluid load these patients with one to two liters, 20 to 30 cc's per kilo, because these patients are volume down. And if you do need to intubate them, you want to make sure they have adequate preload. If you're going to use magnesium, consider pushing to higher doses. Consider that infusion to keep the serum levels of magnesium up, understanding that we don't have great data telling us that this is going to make a huge impact. And probably the non-invasive and epinephrine are the real winners here. Man, that was so good. Thanks so much, Dr. Swaminathan. Before we go, a couple of FoamEd EM cases offerings that I don't think we've mentioned on the podcast much at all before. And that is first our YouTube channel, which houses our rapid reviews videos, EMU365 videos, and most recently, a few choice videos from the latest EM cases summit. And also the EM cases Instagram account, which houses all our infographics the choice, beautifully designed summaries of a variety of EM cases topics. So with that, I hope you all had a restful holiday season. Until next time, take it easy.